lot sick. It was a lot sick. Now, wait a minute. Isn't this the daylight savings time that everybody's supposed to be here? <laughs> I, I guess some are out ill, and I know uh, Pam and Dale are, are traveling. Let's look at our announcements. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. Acts 4, 16. Today is communion, uh, following the worship hour, as is our tradition. We'll have a 10-minute break, then regather. No evening study and no choir rehearsal tonight. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. Have Andrea's number there for the prayer chain. New Acts and Facts and Free Grace broad, Broadcaster are here uh, on the foyer table. Make use of those. Thornville Baptist Family Movie Night. This Friday, the 9th, 7 to 9, Mom's Night Out, rated PG. Uh, so that'll be here in the Fellowship Hall, and details are uh, posted on the Helps Board. I've already mentioned uh, Dale and Pam headed back. Anything else I've forgotten? If not, I'll direct you to the scripture for meditation this morning, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 13.
Let's stand and open our service in prayer. Not many to pick from, George. Would you go open for us? Our Heavenly Father, we praise you, Lord, this day for allowing us to be in your house and uh, have fellowship one with another, but especially you. We pray, dear Father, that your word would go forth with power and be received into our hearts with gladness. Lord, we ask that you shape our thoughts and our minds so that we indeed would reflect the true character of our Savior and our Lord. Be with pastors, he speaks, Lord, lift him up and use him for your purposes. Bless our time together in your house and we are gathered here to worship you. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Can have you turn to 396 in your Trinity? 396 in the red book.
congregational hymn time. Does anyone have a choice? <laughs> really? Where's Naomi, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Do you have one, Andrew? Well, what's the name of it, Andrew? What's it called? Beloved. What is it? Yeah, First John seven and eight. Uh, fifty one. <clears throat> fifty one in the purple book. Fifty one. Beloved. Beloved. Let us love one another. No, no, here's one right here. Here's a regular purple one. Fifty one. Okay, we're gonna sing it two times through. Okay. Fifty one. Fifty one in the purple. reading this morning is Acts chapter 4, and we'll be reading 8 through 22. I don't know if there's a reader or not. I think I'll be the reader today. Let's stand and read together. I'm sorry, uh, Acts 4, 8 through 22. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. 
that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have, been, what we have seen and heard. F- further threats, After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Ask that the Lord bless the reading of his word. Remain standing and turn to number 12 in your trinity. Red hymnal, number 12.
Our scripture text this morning is Acts 4. Well, we're really sparsely populated today. I think a lot of people are out sick. Thank you all that are here for the gifts that I got for my birthday. Mostly gift cards to eating places. Some people are trying to make me fat. (laughs) I'll be able to eat very good for the whole month. So thank you so much. In our last study, we considered the joy of righteous anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger. It's the kind of anger that God displays. An anger due to injustice or unbelief or when evil prevails over good and lies over truth. We ought to be angry about all those things. It's anger when the holy is profaned or blasphemed. We read that even the natural catastrophes that we have been citing as signs of Christ's second coming are evidence of God's righteous anger. Jeremiah words it this way, Jeremiah 10, verse 10. The Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal king. When he is angry, the earth trembles. Yeah. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Jeremiah 10, verse 10. God's righteous anger is displayed firstly against his sinning people in the form of chastening. The discipline of a father that brings to, is brought to a wayward child. That's the way we look at it as believers. That's what it is. We learn that God turned that whole generation of the exodus back into the wilderness where they roamed for 40 years and died of natural causes. They never did enter the promised land. Why? Well, they didn't believe God would fight for them as they entered Canaan. They sent in the spies, you remember, the spies come back and said, you know, there's some big people living in this country. Giants live in the land. And a bunch of them said, we can't do this. Most of them said, we can't do this. They're going to beat us to a pulp. We're going to lose. Two, two men stood up, Joshua and Caleb, and they both said, no, we can do this. The Lord is our strength. Well, they listened to the naysayers and God turned them back into the wilderness where they perished in the desert. We learn that God shows no partiality in dispensing his justice. He chastens us as his children and he condemns those who aren't his children. However hard it is to be a believer in the crucible of God, we think of Job as another character Uh, that went through that it's a hundred more times horrendous to become uh, a a person under God's judgment as an unbeliever 
Ignoring or rejecting the good news of the Savior is also unbelief. It also puts us back in the desert to die. However, God's righteous anger can be avoided if people repent of their sin. They turn to Christ for his cleansing blood and forgiveness. Today's study, we want to look at the subject of foreordination, which is a big theological term. I hope to explain it in such a way that it will make it simpler for us to grasp. But it's a very important truth. How do things happen in our world? Is it by chance or by the hand of God being in control of everything? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for the truth, the fact that we deal with some theological issues at times that are hard to understand, but it's harder to remain in ignorance. In ignorance, we perish. At least in truth, we have a doorway, we have an entranceway into forgiveness and rest, uh, repentance and restoration. And Lord, we just pray that you will help us understand the biblical truths today that we will consider. Help us understand the importance of the fact that God is in control of all things, good and bad, that nothing happens outside his prescribed will. Bless our people that are ill. Bless those that are traveling. Bring them back safe, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking this morning at the subject of the joy of for ordination and the first point in your bulletin outline is the discussion between chance as the world understands that and for ordination evolutionists deny the creator and the creation documents of the bible opting instead for the notion that our very complex world is the product of chance that's what evolutionists believe in. The formula used is this. Time plus chance equals the natural world that we see and experience. Time plus chance. This is why the late Carl Sagan and his followers still continue to promote the need for Billions and billions of years, as they say. They think that given enough time, random chance will find a way to become productive by what they consider to be spontaneous generation. That is, life from inanimate objects. What is never discussed in these evolutionary think tanks is the origin of the original matter which the big bang is supposed to have from which the big bang is supposed to have occurred for them matter material is eternal that is it always has been in the evolutionary scheme 
And so it is as Paul taught. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. Amen. Romans 1 verse 25. So it's anything and everything but the creator. Anything but having to answer to a personal creator God. But nothing is eternal except God. All else in our world, in our universe, had a beginning and it will have an end. It's just the opposite of eternal. The other absurdity, which is never addressed by evolutionists, is the concept that life originated from non-life. The living from inanimate objects. If a scientist were to encase a stone, let's say, in a glass-protected environment and then feed it with light and water and warmth and nutrients and vitamins and minerals and amino acids and any number of hundred other building blocks of life, if he kept that stone in this pristine environment for a billion years or 50 billion years, does anyone with reasonable intelligence believe that that stone could come alive. And this with a, <laughs> with a scientist bringing all of his expertise to the equation. Such assumptions are based on, here it is, irrational faith. It's faith that would believe something like that. But it's irrational faith. And yet we Christians are ridiculed for our faith in a living, personal, creator God. So if then chance plus time is not the originator of life, how did life come about? Very simply, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men, John 1, the first four verses. How is it possible for Christ to have the power to bestow life? Answer, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, John 5, verse 26. The origin of life is God, a person, God the person, whether it be God the Father or God the Son or God the Holy Spirit, they have life, the scripture says, in themselves. So it's not a derived life, it's an innate life, and no other being is self-animating.
God may then animate others, living things. And that's what John says in 1 John, or rather John 1 and verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. In God, that's where the life began. And from that life, life came to mankind. The Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, it's really interesting the way he says it, 1 John 1 verse 2, he says, the life, the life appeared We have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. 1 John 1 verse 2. So the creative power of Jesus is stated categorically by the Apostle John and is phrased in such near Genesis vocabulary that no student of the Bible would miss its significance. Say, so what do you mean? Well, what do we read in Genesis? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Genesis 1, 1 to 3 Now compare that with what John writes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. John 1, verse 1 and 2. The Word of creation which God the Father spoke with life resulting was his son Jesus whom John calls the word and identifies as the one who was with God at the Genesis beginning. And John says through him All things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. John 1, verse 3. Paul's even more definitive. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. So he's talking about his preexistence, his eternality. He's not part of creation, but before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. So it was not chance that brought about the universe as we know it, and in particular the living beings who occupy it, but rather God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1, verse 27. To suggest, as evolutionists do, that our intricate human bodies evolved is absurd. Even the psalmist, who had limited access to scientific data, could and did acknowledge to God, you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful and I know that full well. Psalm 139. Verse 13 and 14. None of this is accidental or incidental. Rather it was, it it is on purpose. Every uh, Every life has a programmed destiny. And by the way, that's our biblical foundation to be against abortion. Every life has a programmed destiny that God created. The psalmist puts it this way. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them ever came to be. Psalm 139 verse 16. You know what that tells us? That tells us no one is born prematurely. No one dies before his or her time. Our days are numbered, yes, but they're also ordered. The psalmist writes, all our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 If we have the strength, yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we we fly away. Psalm 90, verse 9 and 10. Now you see, there's nothing left to chance in all of this. This is all on purpose. This is all planned. Which brings us to this question of foreknowledge and foreordination. Foreknowledge. Ever wonder what it means to know something? To know something. Just a simple question. If you say, I know the sky is blue, what is the rationale for that statement? Without getting into the scientific jargon of dust particles and refracted sun rays and so on, you know the sky is blue because you have witnessed it with your own eyes on a hundred thousand different occasions. You also know that there are gray skies in times of storm, red skies at twilight, black skies during tornadoes, Experience has been your teacher, and you trust your senses to have informed you correctly. 
What is more, you understand that hypothesis is not the same as knowledge. Some years back, 2012 to be exact, in January, the scare hit the news media that the world would come to an end. Why? Because the Maya calendar predicted such so people in good, in good conscience could not state that to be a fact. It was hypothetical. Now their fear might be because they perceived it to be fact. But most people just accepted this prediction as an unproven theory and they slept quite well on December 31st, 2012. The point I'm making is that for something to be known, it has to be certain. You cannot know the hypothetical. Theory is hypothetical. Prognostication is hypothetical. Plans for the future are hypothetical. You can say, well, you know, from June 1st to June 12th, our family will be vacationing in Colorado. You can say that. You can plan that. But you cannot know that. Why not? Well, because things unforeseen and unbeknown to you may so disrupt your life that vacationing in Colorado will become an impossibility. That's why. Solomon words it this way, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Or again, A man's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand his own way? Proverbs 20, verse 24. Or again, If the Lord delights in a man's way, he makes his steps firm, Though he stumbles, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Psalm 37, verse 23 and 24. This is why James cautions us, as he does. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast, you brag. As it is, your boasting is evil. James 4, 13 through 16. So you see, you may not be around for your June vacation to Colorado. Or you may be so sick that you can't go. Or you may have financial reversals that cause you to abandon your plans. 
Any number of things could happen between now and June. So it would be absurd for you to say with any kind of confidence, I know my family will be vacationing in Colorado come June. No, you can't say that. What you can say is, we are planning. We hope to be. But you cannot say, I know. James says, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Let alone what? Months from now. Isaiah 46, verse 9 and following, contrasts this to God, who declares, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say... My purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10. Or again. From ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? Isaiah 43, verse 13. King Nebuchadnezzar was brought to this awareness through God's judgment on his pride. And in the end, he confessed all the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. He, God, does as he pleases (laughs) with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. And no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Daniel 4, verse 35. And wise men Solomon concurs. There is no wisdom, writes Solomon. There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Proverbs 21, verse 30. We begin to see, or I hope we begin to see, that there is a vast difference, a vast difference between what we know and what God knows. A vast difference. And so we ask, the, well, doesn't the same criteria apply to God for knowing as applies with us? And the answer is yes. God can only know what is certain, not the hypothetical. But the difference is that whatever God ordains for the present or the future is never uncertain. (laughs) That's the difference. If he declares it, it's true. If he plans it, it is a done deal. If he predicts it, it will come to pass. And this puts God into a totally different category than us. We can also know what is certain, but unlike God, we cannot make things certain. 
We can plan. We can postulate. We can do our homework and use all of our skills to construct a scenario that we hope to implement. But without control of all the variables, we cannot say with God, what I have said that I will bring about, what I have planned that I will do. Isaiah 46, verse 11. That would make us God, wouldn't it? Observe here that even the future plans of God are contemplated. What I have planned, that will I do. Even though the reality may be off in the distant somewhere. Future. May I say that this is why prophecy in scripture becomes reliable and trustworthy and yet and not even in the same category prophecies of scripture are not even in the same category as the prognosticators like Nostradamus or the Maya shaman God says I make known the end from the beginning from ancient times what's still to come That's the whole spectrum of history. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Isaiah 46, verse 10. Two chapters later, God tells some of the reasons behind his predictions. I foretold the former things long ago by mouth, announced, I announced them, and I made them known Then suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. For I know how stubborn you were. The sinews of your neck were like iron, your forehead like bronze. Therefore I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you so that you could not say, My idols did them, my wooden image, my metal god ordained them. You have heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? For now on I will tell you of new things, of hidden things unknown to you. They are created now, not long ago. You have not heard of them before today. So you cannot say, oh yeah, I knew them. No, you have neither heard nor understood. From of old your ear has not been open. Well do I know your treacherous, how treacherous you are. You were called a rebel from birth. Isaiah 48, verse 3 through 8. What's he saying? God is saying, I say these things as to what happened and what will happen. And one of the reasons I do that is so that you can't say that your idols knew about it all the time. God has foreknowledge of the future because he has ordained future events. So he knows what he's up to. (laughs) He knows what he's going to do. He knows what's going to happen because he's prepared the happenings. I would say it this way, he knows his plan and he works his plan.
What about foreordination and human responsibility? I would say that foreordination is not the same as fatalism. Fatalism teaches that all events are predetermined and therefore, get it now, therefore unalterable. You cannot exercise any decision-making that changes the end results. However, that's fatalism. However, for ordination renders the events of the future certain, but it makes allowances for free will decisions of human beings. We have this in our text, Acts 4. 26 and following. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That's a quote from Psalm 21. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Now note, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Or again, Acts 2, verse 23, words it this way. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Acts 2, verse 23. Or Peter, preaching to the Jewish crowd, Acts 3. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Acts 3, 17 through 18. I want you to observe these five points. The event, Jesus' crucifixion, was determined by God to occur long before it happened. That's point number one. Number two, Jesus was handed over to wicked men, apart from which no amount of human force could have caused it to happen. Jesus' words to Peter, Do you think I cannot call on the Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels, that is, to rescue him. Matthew 26, verse 53, 12 legions would be about 72,000 angels. So Jesus was handed over to wicked men. Again, God in the activity. Number three, it was wicked men carrying out, get it now, their own wicked scheme that resulted in Jesus' arrest, the kangaroo court, his trial and death sentence. But in all of this, God did not make these men do what they did, nor did he make them wicked in the murder of their heart. They were all these things, by their own sinful jealousy and their actions were free and not compelled. They were just living out the wickedness of what they were. 
And number four, in all of this, the prophecies concerning Jesus' suffering and death were fulfilled. And number five, because there was no coercion on part of God, the human players were responsible and accountable for the sin that they perpetrated. God didn't make them do these things. They did them out of their own sinful hearts. Now, I want you, here's the point I'm trying to make. None but God can determine outcomes as being certain while allowing sinners to be themselves, to defy his moral laws, to do their own wicked thing, but in the end, stay within the framework of his eternal decrees or foreordination. And I'm telling you, that's real sovereignty. That's real sovereignty. God determines the outcome. And allows men to be themselves, wicked as they are. Boy, that gives you a a head scratcher. And it helps us to think through history a bit, doesn't it? Think of the despots of history like Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin. Attempted to gain victory for their plans by forcing their will on the people through any and all means, even if it meant imprisonment and torture and death. But God does no such thing. What he does is to foreordain the certainty of the event while allowing people to act freely, even if sinfully, so that in the end his will is accomplished and they are still responsible for their conduct. Wow. That's real power. That's true sovereignty. Over every circumstance of life. No wonder then we are called upon to tremble. The Son of Man will go, says Jesus, just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Why? Because he's culpable for being a traitor. Matthew 26, verse 24. God's sovereignty over the events of our world never excuses or dismisses our responsibility to respond aright to what he has revealed in the Scriptures. So men are doing their things, their evil things. But God's plan is being completed. Well, what about foreordination and eternity? Jesus' crucifixion fulfilled God's eternal plan of atonement for sin. The very first prophecy in the Bible deals with the seed of the woman, Jesus, who would do battle with Satan over the souls of men. It's worded this way, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, 
you will strike his heel. Reference to Satan, Genesis 3.15. Isaiah predicts Jesus' suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was, like, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as sheep before her shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53 verses 5 and following. In Matthew's gospel, we read, Now as Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and he said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Matthew 20. Verse 17 through 19. John the Baptist, upon first meeting Jesus, declared, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Speaking of his preexistence. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen, said John, and I testify that this is the Son of God. John 1, verse 29 and following. The writer of Hebrews says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all of their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but it's Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2. 14 through 17. This atonement through the cross of Christ was, was no afterthought with God, but his plan from all of eternity. Revelation 13, verse 8, identifies Jesus as the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world in the mind of God. It was a done deal, foreordained in eternity. Now that's the Savior, foreordained 
his cross work foreordained. Oh, there's something else, though. The recipients of Jesus' cross work were also foreordained. Let me read it for you. Paul says of God, He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy in his sight. In love, I'm still reading, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. In him we, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. How does a person know that they were singled out by God to be recipients of Jesus' atoning sacrifice? Do you ever wonder about that? He answers, Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are of God's possession to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, verse 4 and following. Have you believed? That's a good question. Will you believe the word of truth, the gospel? promise of God is to all who received him, to those who believed in him. He gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. John 1, verse 12 and 13. What was foreordained was our eternal salvation. What was foreordained was we who are going to believe and be saved. But then thirdly, the salvation obtained is eternal and without repeal. The writer of Hebrews says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source, listen now, the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Hebrews 5, verse 8 and 9. The the source of eternal salvation. Again, the scripture says, Paul writes, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, 
the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20 and 4. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee that what God has promised us is going to come true. Or again, Paul writes in Romans 11, God's gifts, God's call are, here it is, are irrevocable. Romans 11 verse 29. I would say it this way, God cannot and he does not change his mind. Men change their minds all the time, don't they? We change our minds because we aren't in control of all the variables that affect our lives. So we talked about the trip to Colorado. You can make your plans till the cows come home, but a lot can happen between now and June. Not so with God. Whatever he's determined to do, no one can say, what have you done? No one can say, you need to reverse this. You need to rethink this. What he has ordained to happen is going to happen. It's as good as a done deal. In Jesus' own words, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them what? Eternal life. It's eternal. They shall, let me read it on, never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. John 10, verse 27 and following. This is the joy of foreordination. Jesus contemplating the cross says this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Well, I ask the question, what possible joy could there be for Jesus in contemplating the torturous death of the cross? Well, let him answer for himself. When Christ came into our world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you, Father, did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Then I said, Here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Hebrews 10, verse 5. And that will of God, as we have studied, meant a cross by which Jesus would pay the debt of his people's sins so that they could be forgiven on his merit. That was the joy that he contemplated. Rescuing a whole nation of people from the pit of hell. Snatching, as it were, all those that Satan had in his authority and power. The 
The ones upon whom God set his affections in eternity past were recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. And all recorded there will hear, will believe, will be forgiven, will be adopted into God's family forever. And that's what Jesus meant when he said from the cross, it is finished. It's finished. Are you among the someones? Well, you can be, but not on your terms. It's only through repentance. It's only through faith. And in that is how you demonstrate that you're one of those foreordained by God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, nothing is left to chance, but especially not something so valuable so precious, so necessary as our salvation. Not left to chance, not left to the will of man, the whims of man. Not left to circumstances. Not left to this or that that we do in terms of our planning and programming and all the things that the church and church people go through to try to reach the loss. It is You, 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 O Lord, that saves sinners. And you can do it, and you do do it through various means, always through the truth of the gospel. But how you get that gospel into their hearts, to their ears to hear it, this is your marvelous grace. Bless whom you will, save whom you will. And I'm so thankful today, and I'm sure our people are thankful, that it is foreordination from you that controls the world in which we live. Not Satan, not the devil, not chance, not time, not circumstances, but God Almighty. And we're part of your family if we're in Christ today. Therefore, we're not shaky on shaky ground. We're not scared about the future. We're not worried. We rest secure in the hands of the Father who has called us unto himself through Christ and the Holy Spirit. Thank you, dear Lord, for such loving care, for such winning grace. In Jesus' name, amen. From Trinity Hymnal, let's sing number 108, 108. Let's stand as we sing number 108, what air... What error my God ordains is right. Keep that in mind.
just think about this. If we have a good God, not an evil God, if we had a, have a good God, and he is the one that ordains everything that comes into our lives, the hymn writer says, uh, I'm content to leave it with God then, right? Whatever comes my way, it's going to be for his glory and my good. And I'm content to leave it there. People don't pray like that because they don't know God like that. But the hymn writer knows God like that. I hope we know God like that. We're going to take a 10-minute break and root for the Lord's table, and that will be our second and last service for the day. So take 10 minutes right now. Thank you.